My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. So today we are doing a bonus episode all about Apple TV's Lisey's Story adaptation. Is it Apple TV or Apple TV Plus? I never get that shit right. I think the full, the proper nomenclature is Apple TV Plus, but... It's just, I just say it's on Apple, you know, (laughs) it is the, the Apple streaming service, which has been kind of knocking it out of the park lately, by the way. Like I remember when Apple was announced, like, fuck, everybody's getting a streaming service now. It's like, I'm going to be spending, you know, $300 a month to stay on, (laughs) on board with everything that I want to want to watch. And it was like, oh, well, what's Apple going to do? And then they throw out Ted Lasso and we're just like, well, okay, I guess you've earned your place. You've earned my servant. Servant's good. Have you watched that? I've only watched a couple episodes of that, like, and I liked it. It's not like I was like, fuck this show. I was like, oh, this is really intriguing and, and kind of fun and pulpy and, and you know, weird and all up my alley. And I just, for whatever reason, stopped watching. Like, I moved on to something else and never went back. I'll, I'll have to rectify that. That's what happened to me, too. Like, I watched a couple of episodes and then um, I think I was sharing someone's password or something. And then there was some technical problem with it and I couldn't go on. And then later we got a trial or something to mm. plus for buying a new iPhone or I forget what the circumstances yeah. were, but I was able to loop back around to it and started over from the beginning. And we like marathoned a ton of those in a row. I really like servant cause it's, it's pure Shyamalan for better and for worse. <laughs> and so like every episode is sort of like just, you know, twists and turns one after another, you know, it's like an overdose of of Shyamalan, but it's <laughs> it's very like soapy and and pulpy and you know fun. You know, nice. I had a, I had a good time with it, and then I stopped watching it and never finished. So <laughs> there's something to well, that. You can only take so much of that in a row, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, I'm uh, I, I've been pleasantly surprised by the output. I watched a little bit of their Mosquito Coast uh, series as well because I love me some Justin Thoreau, but. Uh, that one just felt a little too self-serious for me. It was real kind of hard for me to follow. It's just what I didn't want. Like Ted Lasso, that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted something mm-hmm. that, you know, I could watch three episodes in a blink of an eye and just feel happy. It's like, you know, it's like anti-depression pill. <laughs> right. Uh, that show. So what is not an anti-depression pill is Lisey's story. Uh, which, <laughs> which, Great uh, segue. Yeah. Great segue. Yeah. You're welcome. You're welcome, America. I'd like to start one by just kind of laying out what the story is real quick um, and then kind of talk about what our relationship was with the book before we dive into the first three episodes, which just uh, came out. Right on. So the basic premise, it follows uh, the main characters, uh, Lisey, who was married to a very famous writer, you know, a.k.a. Stephen King stand in Scott Landon, who had a traumatic childhood that he essentially funneled into his work. And you realize that a lot of the fantasy that's in his work isn't his interpretation of dealing with the trauma and grief of losing his brother at a young age and an abusive father, um, but like a literal representation of his ability to kind of flip into an alternate world, kind of like um, uh, Talisman a little bit. And uh, in that alternate world, he can, you know, there's a pool where, you know, if you can get sucked into just looking at it, you know, and, and be lost there forever, or you can kind of wade in and heal yourself and, and peace the fuck out and come back and, and all this stuff. The crazy thing about the story is the way King writes it. It is a very personal story. It is one that you clearly see him grappling with a big what if, and he's thinking about what would Tabitha's life be like if he died and Mm -hmm. what, what would she be doing? What would her be process be? There would be, you know, she'd be hit up by universities and crazy fans alike to, you know, find any scrap of leftover writing that King had left over. And you can tell that a lot of this stuff is something he's just considering uh, via his own mortality, which is, which makes it a very personal book, but the book itself is a little inaccessible and the show is, very much an adaptation of that book, I think. 
But the the book is filled with a lot of childlike language. You know, the the other world he calls Booyah Moon. Um, you know, because he invented all, all this, or he discovered all this stuff as a child. You know, but there's lots of baby talk and like in joke talk that you know couples have. It reads awkward on the page, and it sounds kind of awkward to hear. So, like there's there's a language barrier. There's a little bit of a coldness uh, to this. Uh, the the basic setup is that Lisi, after her husband's death, she's finding notes that are leading her on a scavenger hunt that her husband kind of left behind for her. Um, they call it a bool hunt, B O O L. And so she finds this, and as she's slowly uncovering the path that her husband's wanting her to take. She's being threatened by a crazed fan named uh, Jim Dooley and mm-hmm. who really wants the, uh, the author's work. So that is the setup for the whole a thing. Landon uh, bro, a Landon bro. He, he's a Landon bro, bro. So Scott, what was your relationship to the book? Like, did you read it and love it instantly when it came out? Like, cause this was no. in like his post accident <clears throat> timeframe, right? So this is, yeah, my experience, yeah. my experience with the book is that when it came out, I read it and completed it and then it sort of bounced off of me. I didn't really feel one way or another about it. You know, when I first read it, when it came out, I was, I don't know how old, but it was long before I got married. And then in the lead up to the series, my wife and I got the audio book because I wanted to revisit it. And all the stuff that I found a little cloying in it the first time around, like the secret language that exists between a couple, I didn't have the life experience to really understand that the first time around. It really does take a marriage to sink into that sort of synchronicity with another person where you have a shorthand, you have these nonsense words that maybe they have multiple meanings or maybe they, you know, they only mean something to you and and so on and so forth. And I found it a lot more powerful and uh, and frankly, less silly after I'd been married, which made it pretty interesting to me, given the, right. the subject matter. I don't love the book, I, near, not nearly as much as King. You know, obviously it's very personal to him and it's his very favorite, but I think it's a good book. You know, I think it's just, it's a very specific sort of thing that he's doing. And I think you have to be on that wavelength to get it or, or not. And if you're not, it's just kind of, you know, I think it'll probably be like the experience that I had the the first time around when I read it, where it just kind of bounces off of you and it doesn't really sink its claws into you. That's exactly the same thing, minus the fact that I'm not married. <laughs> so, right. so I didn't have that, but I did have a, a greater appreciation for, um, I guess, not not as much the couple's secret communication <laughs> words and, and stuff like that. That that didn't hit me mm-hmm. as much, but just kind of seeing it in context from, you know, King injecting a lot of his own late middle age fear into the book and, and watching how he kind of grapples with, you know, his own impending mortality and what happens if he leaves behind a wife and what she's going to have to go through all that. I like hit me a little harder this time. And I also mm-hmm. reacted. I don't know why, but I reacted a little bit more to Lisey's relationship with her sisters and, you know, the emotion that's underneath all that. And I'll, I will say the thing that, that um, I think is really fascinating going back to look at this is something that the show hasn't hit on yet. I think a little bit in episode three, um, but I think the, that, they're probably saving this for close to the finale is all the flashback stuff where it's just um, uh, young Scott Landon and his brother uh, and their abusive father. And Mm -hmm. for whatever reason that felt like, you know, King without the kind of heavy melodramatic bullshit that's within the rest of it. And I say bullshit with as a loving term because it's, he does it very well, but it's like, there's lots of complicated, you know, emotions, there's grief and all this stuff that's kind of heavy around there. And then when you get to like a straight up, you know, young kid relationships with each other, trying to survive in an abusive household, that just feels more like unfettered King. Mm -hmm. And, um, I got real strong frailty vibes when I revisited it. Totally. uh, This time, um, because you have this whole, this whole aspect there where the father seems crazy, but what if he's not, what if there really are these blood bulls and what if, you know, his his brother who he keeps cutting to let out the uh the evil what if he's actually right about that right. you know totally. it's like all, all this stuff that that became really fascinating and you know to me on this reread and i can't wait to see them really dive into it in the show in episode three which just hit they um they they spend a little bit of time with 
the young brothers and we get to see uh, the older brother setting the younger one on a bull hunt, which is like the thing that sets up everything that he's doing with Lisi now. So the bull hunt is like the scavenger hunt where they leave like little notes and for each other. And, and uh, you know, you find something sweet, you know, that kind of thing and that they find the next note. So by the way, I just yeah. I, a quick interjection. Um, please, please. Michael Pitt, totally unrecognizable in this role, I think. You know, <laughs> totally. If, if if I hadn't known ahead of time that he was in the cast, I never would have guessed like who that was. And I'm I'm kind of happy to see him again. I really liked him on Boardwalk Empire. Right. Um, I've liked him in pretty much everything I've seen. He's got a yeah, very Hedwig particular. And, yeah. yeah. Dreamers. Yeah. Totally. He, he was in like he was the guy in most indie things in like the mid aughts on and then just. Mm-hmm kind of disappeared. I, I wonder what the story was. I was just talking about him with a, a friend of mine well, like last week. I was wondering what, what all happened there. Uh, well, I remember story circulating. That he was a bit of a handful to work with. And I, th- well, I'll just leave it at that. Right. I don't want to be, I don't want to be saying anything. <laughs> That's a, uh, the King cast lawyers knocking at your door right now. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, let's just, I don't feel like if, if the guy had any, um, personal problems i i don't remember the particulars of it but i could i could speculate based on what vague memories i do have but uh i don't want to do that you right. know when when people have shit going on in their lives and you know their own demons to conquer it's you know that's that's information you don't want to be uh playing fast and loose with you know what right, I'm saying? Right. so but For i sure. you know i do know that he had a he had a reputation for a time for being, again, just Difficult a to little bit with. of a handful to yeah. to to wrangle on set. But he's always great on screen, and yeah. I'm I'm glad to see him back on screen. Frankly, so as you mentioned, this is King's favorite per, personal favorite novel. This is the one that he likes the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, which uh, again, from his perspective, he was working out a lot of shit. And I think that this novel like really helped him kind of set things you know uh in his mind gave him a little bit of peace and you know it's i I totally buy it 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 wouldn't crack my top 10 personally but i get that this one's important to him and as such you know he kind of took a unique approach with the adaptation of it because usually king is very much of the my book's always on the shelf you know give me the millions to option the the story and you know go with god you make whatever you want like he's very Mm -hmm. seldom precious about the adaptations of his work. And in this one, my understanding is he held on to the rights to this for a long time. Yes. And when he finally sold the rights, like he came on, he's a producer on the show. He's, he wrote every single episode, you know, he wrote the screenplay. Like he wanted to have that kind of control. And I think he was holding out specifically for something like this, where Apple TV gave them, you know, a big budget. They gave them a yeah. list stars. You have Clive Owen and Julianne Moore and Joan Allen and uh, Jennifer Jason Lee. And, you know, Dane DeHaan is the, is the bad guy. Like all these are, you know, big screen people, right? The, this is, these aren't small screen people. This isn't a mini series cast. This is a mm-hmm. theatrical film cast doing this. And then of course you got Pablo Lorraine directing, um, and he did Jackie and I know Scott, you're a particularly big fan of uh, Pablo's. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, yes, I think he's a phenomenal director, but I want to say that mostly I'm a huge fan of Jackie. I remember the year that came out, like, you know, that, that being a movie I heard about all year, like you got to see Jackie, you got to see Jackie. And I'm, I'm just, I just was not interested in the subject matter. Like, uh, right. it just didn't seem like a thing I was going to love, you know? Um, and so I didn't make time for it. And then when award screener season came around, you know, I got a copy of it and was like, oh, well, here's my chance to finally see it. I don't got to, you know, set aside time to go to a theater and blah, like, you know, that chance had been blown at that point anyway. But I was like, all right, let's let's check this out. And it blew me the fuck away. I love Jackie so much. Uh, it's such a weird film and, you know, uh, impressionistic. and artful it's got an amazing score it looks like a billion dollars natalie portman is on fire in that movie i love the fractured chronology of it and the sort of dreamlike state that lorraine puts you into while you're uh while you're watching it so when i heard that he was doing lisi's story i was i was hyped 
because you can see how someone might watch Jackie and then be like, oh, yeah, this is the guy for Lisey's story. It made perfect sense to me. Um, and right. I think uh, by and large on the directorial front, he is he is killing it on the show. It it looks incredible. It's very evocative. Every frame of it is like a painting. It's got that same coldness that Jackie had that I think is is pretty necessary to the story to tell. Uh, dreamlike and cold. You know, these are the yeah. two storm fronts meeting here. And I, I think that I think he's doing a really great job with that thus far. Yeah, it's vi- very visually distinct, this this series. And I'm not 100% sure. Like, at times I love it. And other times I feel like it's it makes me want to futz with my TV settings because I'm like, this shouldn't be this dark, right? I should be able to be making out. It's a smidge dark from time to time. What, what I'm going on, like, is my are my TV settings fucked up? Is this a Game of Thrones situation where... <laughs> you know where my TV settings aren't perfect, so everything's just ninety percent blackness the whole time. Um, but I do, I will agree that like I do like the distinctness of this look. It, it's somehow colorful yet still muted. It's mm-hmm. really, it's really interesting to me. Where there's lots of really strong colors here, um, but they're not. Well, he's got this washed out popping. palette, and then and then there'll be these these bolts of color that sort of come through it that really draw the eye. I know the cinematographer's in charge of framing a sh- framing the shot, but you know he's still there calling the shots. And there are whole sequences in this in this thing that look like they're just pulled out of some sort of like a dream or like a storybook or or uh, a graphic novel, something like that. And um, you know his use of color is very very interesting. Think of like the muted sort of washed out look, you know, uh, back in our world, and then when you go to Booyah Moon. That shot of like Amanda on the beach and all those other people, I, I assume, or uh, other travelers on the beach, I guess I'll say. And the the moon in the background and then that pirate ship with all the lights. I was like, holy mm-hmm. Lord. Or there's a there's a shot where like Clive Owen is sort of like walking toward the pool and the 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 colors in it somehow tricked me into believing that I was looking at. There's like a stream that comes down. Uh, over some over some rocks and it sort of lit up with orange and and red and for a second the perspective of it made it look like there was this steep chasm right next to him as he was approaching the pool and I was like man what a shot that is (laughs) I know you know I'm looking at special effects here but they are used to pretty great degree I think I think the I think the the hang-up that I have if there's one to have is that to use a, a word you were using when we were talking about this earlier, a little inaccessible because of the way it's written, plus the way Lorraine is directing it. You have these scenes where there are flashbacks, sometimes within flashbacks or flash sideways or like what have you. And I can imagine someone who's completely unfamiliar with the book just being thrown off their axis by it. Like what am I, what, where are we in the timeline right now? Like what exactly is happening? It's the demarcation lines between, you know, current time and whatever time period is being portrayed in the flashbacks are not always clear. Right. That supports the dreamlike state of it. But it also, I think will, I think it'll serve to throw a lot of viewers off. Like the average TV watcher, I I would imagine would be thrown. Well, part of the problem there is part of Lisey's bull hunt, part of her scavenger hunt that her dead husband's setting her on, where he's reminding her of things essentially that happened in their past. And every time we flash back to it, they don't distinguish a young Clive Owen and a young Julianne Moore from the older one. So they're like right. getting married and you're assuming they're in their 20s and they look both look like 48. You know, it's right. like they, they're, <laughs> right. they don't change hair. They don't try to do the Lola de Youngify thing. Um, there's no like extra makeup. It's like literally just them, which is an interesting choice from a perspective of this is how you, she's seeing herself in her memory. You know, she's not seeing herself as young. She's seeing the person she's looking at in the mirror. She's seeing her last image of her husband in her head. Like, you know, so I, I get it on a story level, but it's making it very confusing, I think, to anybody who doesn't already kind of know what they're in for. Now, the stand right. had a similar problem jumping back and forth in timelines, but the stand is. Um, the CBS All Access series, but the stand is more confounding because they had to like break that story in order to make it confusing. That's not how it was written. <laughs> um, and uh, Lisey's story is all about the past influencing the the present and 
you know, and uh, with Scott's ability to go to this other place, he seems to also have a kind of foresight into what's going to happen in the future. He calls them visions that he will then transcribe into into books. I mean, all this kind of came about. I mean, not the whole thing, but definitely the idea of of that pool of water was always from the question that King is asked all the time about where he gets his ideas. And, and he had a metaphorical response to that, which is, you know, there's, he believes in a lake of creativity that all writers are like pulling from Mm -hmm. and that, you know, some kind of, you know, other realmness that, you know, there's a big lake of ideas out there. And that's why sometimes writers will pull out the same idea at the same time. And it's just what's running that day, you know? Um, And so that's kind of, kind of the idea behind Booyah Moon um, started there. And, you know, it's really interesting how King, who's super addicted to writing, views Booyah Moon as a healing pool. Like that, that is what, you know, these characters, when they're hurt, they go into the pool and it heals them. And if this pool also represents his ideas, like when he wades in and, you know, in in his mind's eye, you know, as he's creating, it's healing him in some kind of way. Mm -hmm. Um, so like all this subtext is there but you're you're right in the inaccessibility of the show and the inaccessibility of the book to a certain extent um that puts up barriers and and i think some of the issue saying this on a stephen king podcast that i created uh you know it might sound sacrilegious but you know i think one of the issues is king writing this himself i think the benefits are that you're getting all that subtext and making sure that that's in there and not glassed over which is great you know he understands his characters better than anybody and they jump off of the the screen and as real all that works but he doesn't have kind of a, a tv writer's sense of hooking an audience right he doesn't have that that sense like i was I was shocked actually that they didn't play up the mystery of of the other world. Like it just it just jumps right into it. Like it just exists. There is no playing with the you know within Lisey's point of view because um, at a certain point she doesn't she believes that all the stuff that she was seeing was just Scott his crazy imagination his great vivid imagination. You know he was feeding her almost these visions of these other places. Uh, but we never we never get that moment where we have to sit as an audience going, well, what is this fantastical thing that's happening? Like in the first half hour of the show, like he's puking, you know, healing water in the Lisey sister's mouth. We see Booyah Moon. We see all this other stuff. There is no mystery around it. There is no J.J. Abrams mystery box. There isn't the thing that happens at the end of every episode that you're like, fuck, I need to watch that next episode. Well, um, just to play devil's advocate on this point, and specifically at the mention of the mystery box. J.J. Abrams right. thing. And J.J. is like an exec producer on this thing, if I remember correctly. That is true. With King adapting himself here, you're getting the whole book. Whether or not that's the right or wrong way to adapt a novel, um, that's entirely up for debate. But you're getting it for better or for worse. You know, this is a complete telling of Lisey's story. It's it's going to unfold across, you know, eight hours or however long it is. And this is the version that he he wanted to make. What I find ironic about this, this the, the critique that you're making is that, well, the other version of this might be something more like CBS All Access's The Stand, where they did mystery box it up by, you know, turning it into almost a lost type thing for a while. So th- that kind of feels like damned if you do, damned if you don't. These are two polar extremes, obviously. But I I think that I appreciate something that's more full bodied like this and more willing to just be weird. And, you know, you're along for the ride or you're not versus like, hey, we're going to take this thing you love and now we're going to turn it into this other thing you loved. That modernization of what storytelling is like on on television these days. So I, I think um, I don't think that's a, a minus for me. I think that 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 part is actually a plus. It's a fair point. But the problem is, is there is no hook to this, really. You're just asked to jump into the deep end. And much like the book, you know, you're either going to, you know, accept it or it's going to grade on you. You know, and you're, there's only so many times you can hear Julianne Moore say big sis Amanda Bunny uh, without just fucking just shutting it off and not continuing. You know, there, if I, I think had there's to guess, got, there's got to be a, if a, I had a, a guess, middle, middle ground. I'd say Stephen King doesn't give a fuck. You know, he held on to the rights for as long as he as for until he was ready to do it, you know, and this is the version that he quite clearly wanted to make. 
sure. you know so well, i can um, agree with that yeah um but you know that doesn't you know stephen king's uh instincts when it comes to <laughs> creative uh partners and adapting you know this is the same man who fucking has sold half of his shit to akiva goldsman and thinks he does a good job with it so it's like you know that doesn't necessarily because king agrees with it doesn't necessarily mean it's the right the right tact i, I just kind of i just feel like you have a story that's based on a on a on a mystery it's based on a scavenger hunt from beyond the grave right that that is that is the opening of this and there doesn't seem to be any sense of stakes there's no escalation um really it's like cool she found the shovel cool she you know she found a picture and is thinking about the you know booyah moon it's like it doesn't feel it just feels like stuff happening i think i'm just from a from a creative point of view from a, a an audience point of view even like i i'm thinking of it as you know, there's a way to tell the story without losing anything, but also playing up the the mystery a little bit and keeping people engaged and wondering what's going to come next versus, well, I guess this is just happening now, which is what the show is like for better or worse. Right it's on. just things happening. It, it's not there. There is no like, oh, shit, you know, oh, my God, what's this now? What's what's that big fucking thing that's, you know, what's that? Call, called it a tall boy or a long boy. It's like, what's the. What's a long boy? You like there? There, oh, there, he's there is a rascal. No, uh, that long boy. Yeah, that he's a long boy. rascal. That design looks pretty cool, though. You know yeah, what, yeah, what I could yeah. see of it. You know, but like, it just to me, it feels a little bit like a missed opportunity. That if they could have somebody come in and just kind of massage what King wrote and like parcel out the information in just a slightly different order, like everything could be the same. It's just you know when the audience sees it, I think well, would be would would have been a little bit better. If we can agree that the stand and Lisa's story represent two polar opposites on the adaptation front. Oh yeah. Uh, No question. I think we can also agree then that yes, of course there's a more stream. There's like a middle ground that's a little more digestible and maybe not as inaccessible and also maybe uh, a little more TV friendly. I can agree with that. Totally. Well, yeah, and I and I just want to be clear. I'm not meaning like dumb it down so you know network audiences could can follow it. I'm just no, talking but structuring more, it in yeah. in more of a a series of ups and downs, and it should you know one yeah. of the things I've noticed about the show is that each episode just kind of ends. There's no like, I mean, sometimes yes, sometimes no. There are like you know moments that will end on, and you're like, oh shit, what's going to happen next? Like that does happen in it. But that traditional structure of up, down, up, down, up, and then credits roll, I don't think that's going to be consistent on this series. And that is yeah. symptomatic of, of, of King not being a TV writer. Right. It kind well, of something- feels like the book and it's just been chopped up into eight pieces. You know, yeah, I mean, which is kind of what this, the Shining miniseries felt like. You know, it's like sure. that's, that's kind of when it's something personal to him. You know, and with The Shining, he obviously felt like this was his chance to do right by the book. And, you know, with Lisey's, he never had the opportunity where he gave it to somebody to have their own crazy interpretation of it. Right. So. Right. uh, Right. Yeah. No, I agree with that. But one thing we can also agree on, I think, is that um, that we really do love Dane DeHaan as uh, 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 Jim Dooley in this. Holy shit. So, So Jim Dooley is. He's a little bit of a complicated character coming from uh, my perspective. I don't know if you feel this way, Scott, because he's a giant Scott Landon fanboy, right? He is mm-hmm. off the rocker. You know, he's got cardboard cut out of Scott Landon in his house. <laughs> in a few all of he them, wants I believe. Is, yeah. yeah, all he wants is to desperately read whatever Scott left, Scott Landon left. And um, in the third episode, which just hit, you know, we get a little bit more insight into that, you know, because he, he did like a... Uh, like a video blog that that Lisey sees where he's talking about how Landon was never appreciated by proper critical society. Like he was a big bookseller, but he was never appreciated. Uh, and he believes that posthumously any work that he had left over that would earn him the the Nobels and uh, like all this, uh, like he lists the Pulitzer, like all these things that Scott Landon never would. Uh, that's not and what their, those awards award. are for. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like, but he believes that Lisi is sitting on something that is muting his idol's legacy. It's a really interesting character who's clearly dangerous and clearly mentally unstable. 
Uh, but, you know, once again, as somebody who, uh, you know, co-created a Stephen King podcast who talks about Stephen King about five or six hours a week with different people, I had a little bit of time where I'm like, shit, is this how Stephen King would like view me? Right. You know, <laughs> am I Jim Dooley to, to, to King? You know, if he ever even considered my existence, it's like, am I, I just that so. guy that's You're obsessed not. with the work? It's like, but you know what I mean? It's like every everything that they show on. Obviously, I'm not, you know, crazy and a psychopath, but there's a big distinction here where King very clearly sets like this is real life and this is what people's perception of me is. And anybody who thinks they know me th- through my work, they only know, you know, my work. They don't know the real me. The, my real life is what matters to me. My family matters to me. My my wife matters to me. Mm-hmm. You know, like all this other shit. You know, it's, I'm I'm glad you like it, but um, if you obsess over it, it's kind of weird. That's kind of the feeling that that I get from this character. Totally. The thing I like best about what Dahan is doing here is just the physicality he's bringing to the performance. He's always in like a puffy windbreaker sort of thing, you know. Yeah. Which is he's a frail guy, you know. In in real life, you know, he's there's not a lot of bulk on him. I think he's yeah. put on some weight for this, but then they've also got him in that jacket, and he just kind of. The fact that he's usually standing so stock still, but he's got Mm -hmm. that kind of girth on him kind of feels like he might launch at you at any time. And, you know, he he might stab you in the face or he might, you know, say something, you know, creepily polite. You just don't know. Um, There's like a coiled spring aspect to the to what he's doing here that I really enjoy. And he's always been sort of a hit or miss sort of presence for me. Uh, in other things like Valerian. I never saw Valerian. It looked I, like I a, actually like, I like Valerian, it, but it's, uh, yeah. it looked like a bit much. I was, I was all right. It is, it is, yeah. but it's, it's kind of fun, but yeah, he, he doesn't really take that mantle of the, the leading like Bruce Willis kind of character because this feel Valerian almost feels like, uh, Luke Besson doing, you know, another fifth element yeah, kind of totally. thing where it's this big crazy world, but Dane DeHaan just isn't, doesn't have the charm that that Willis did to to kind of lead you through it. Well, um, miscasting that that was what I was getting to is that he right. is he is often just tragically miscast. He might be a very talented actor, but they've on multiple occasions. You know, that's one of the things that's uh, kept me from seeing Valerian is he just seems all wrong for that particular role. Another example of this would be uh, the Cure for Wellness, um, which I believe was Gore Verbinski's last film, it and. Was? I fucking I love Gore Verbinski uh, and I in general, I am a huge fan of that movie. I think it's bonkers and sort of like just Verbinski going buck wild with a budget, you know? Yeah. But the way that character he that Dahan plays in that movie is written, it is not written. For, it's It's written for like a grizzled sort of mid 40s year old, you know, kind of gumshoe, right. not Dane Dahan. You know, who you who it looks like you could pick up <laughs> over your head and throw at a moment's notice if you wanted to. It's um, that kind of sinks the movie, I think. That's not Dane DeHaan's fault. That's a, that's, you know, the director and the casting director's fault. But he is being used to great effect in this. And uh, I really right. do love his performance. I disagree a little bit on Cure for Wellness because I think the cornerstone of that character has to be kind of the ball, slimy corporate douchebag. And I think he plays that part very well. Um, and yeah, but you, you could know, get I, like a, like a young Ed Norton type for that. Someone, someone that is a little, I don't even, I don't, I, 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 I can imagine him being like a sleaze bag, but like a corporate type, he looks too squirrely for that. You know, he looks like a, he looks kind of like a junkie, you know, just to glance at him, you know, I'm sure Dane DeHaan is not a junkie, but he looks, he looks squirrely and sort of feverish at all times. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, which makes him great as uh, a <laughs> dually here. Uh, yes. You're right that he, he has that intensity is like this unblinking intensity to the character. Um, and uh, w- one thing that we absolutely need to bring up is, is that great dark tower reference that we get with his, uh, yeah, what the fuck? Uh, his real introduction to the uh, to the audience, where he, his first big scene in this the series and uh, the first episode is he's in like the library that Scott Landon paid for, and uh, and he's reading kind of in the kids section, like flipping through 
<laughs> a children's book and i thought it, like right away i i clocked that it was uh, charlie and the choo-choo yeah you can see um, the tops of the pages and i was like is that what that is holy shit and i'm like oh that that's really funny you know they picked that up and then the, it becomes a focus of it where he's saying yeah. like this book was his favorite book and he read it all the time as a child the uh, scotland and read it all the time as a child and it inspired him to all this stuff and if you don't know charlie the choo-choo is like our world's like telling of an evil train that that exists in uh, uh the dark tower universe and it's got all these really crazy kids illustrations in it that are like i, I, I re- always remember when this is mentioned in uh is it drawing of the three where where they mention the book or, or is yes. it wastelands oh no no, no, no. I, oh, excuse me no it's wastelands definitely i always remember that they describe it as like like seemingly innocent illustrations until you look closely and you realize that the kids are terrified. And mm-hmm. that always stuck with me. And uh, then they actually put out a, a, a real version, which is the one they use in the TV series. It blew my mind that, uh, that they actually were like, okay, cool. Here's, here's Charlie the Choo Choo. We're just going to say this is uh this exists in this universe. That's a really, it was a really cool nod for like King mega nerds. I think like you, uh, as soon as, you see him reading the book and I could see like, like I was saying, like the tops of the illustrations. I was like, I bet that's fucking Charlie the choo choo. But I didn't think they would reveal one way or another what it was, you know, but then it gets a hero shot where he like sort of picks it up, props it up on a shelf and is sort of like gesturing toward it. And the cover is in full view. Beryl Evans is the author. You know, it's, it's that. And it's specifically the version of the book that was only available at Comic-Con a few years back. You know, in the lead up to Dark Tower, it's not the mass produced one that they ended up selling, which was another really cool Easter egg. It's like the the ultra version of it. Um, right. Someone went out of their way to obtain that specific copy of the book and put it in the series. I, I really wonder how uh, involved King was in that decision. Uh, yeah. I guess if we t- ever talk to him, we'll, uh, we'll ask him. We'll add that to the list. Um yeah, no, but w- something about the scene, though, like the Easter egg aside, it's, it's really great. And I think it's handled in the way Easter eggs should be handled, where it's not like this thing that you're expected to know what it is. If you know what it is, great. If you don't, it doesn't really matter because the crux of the scene is this intimidation moment between Jim Dooley and the librarian and the lady who plays the librarian. I apologize. I don't have her name pulled up in front of me, but she kills it here because she is, yep. you know, kind of this traditional like a little old lady librarian who starts off nice vibe almost a little bit yeah Mm -hmm. and she you know she starts off nice and kind and but also a little on edge because there's a fucking grown man with like junky eyes you know sitting you mentioned junky earlier like he very much has that look here like really red you know uh, eye bags and shit yeah. And there's this grown dude that's look could be quasi homeless looking with the different layers and the mismatched clothes and, and the puffy jacket and all that stuff. And he's just sitting in the kids section of this library. Right. And it, they're all alone there. And he's clearly not well. And he's not making overt threats at first, but you can see this librarian just like clench up and instantly go into survival mode of just agreeing with everything he says. And, you know, you could tell that at a moment, if he jumped at her, you know, she would just have a heart attack and yeah, crumple sure. the floor. And she plays that so well because it's a, it's something that I don't often see when this kind of scene is in a movie. It's usually somebody blubbering or, you know, you know, the silent tear that runs down the cheek. But like it's like a way more subtle version of that. This is just somebody who's terrified for her life that she knows if she says the wrong thing to this guy. Uh, that'll be the last thing she ever says. Yeah, and she just sure. knows that instinctively. <clears throat> and she, you know, her, it, it's just a really great like bit part performance that I think could easily get overlooked. So I wanted to, to highlight that. No, totally. Someone in my mentions uh, described Dahan's performance as Philip Seymour Hoffman doing Anton Chigurh from no country for old men. Yeah. Whoever that was, you were dead on balls accurate. That is exactly what he's doing here. And to his credit, it works like gangbusters. I would like to put forward a fan theory to you. Mm. Here's my theory. Over the years, I have noticed that the term booyah is a a term that frequently pops up in Stephen King's writing. Not like, you know, five times a book, 
But it's such an anachronistic phrase because that's like a bit of slang from what the late 90s, maybe that every time he does it and it happened multiple times in the Dark Tower, he put the word in Eddie Dean's mouth, which always felt really jarring to me because Eddie came from 1986. And I'm like, where is he getting this from 1986? (laughs) You know, that word hadn't even come around by then. The fact that it pops up again here and so prominently with the name Booyah Moon combined with the subject matter of Lisi's story and that it was written for Tabitha. My theory is that the term Booyah is one of these secret language words between Mm. Tabitha and Stephen King. And that anytime he's used it before, he's kind of had her in mind. And it's maybe like a a knowing wink to her that wouldn't be obvious to everyone else. But I think that it's it's placement of prominence here in Lisi's story, which is so clearly devoted to Tabitha. Um, yeah, I think that's probably a thing that gets said around the uh, the King household on on a regular basis. And I will oh, ask I'm him sure. that if we ever get to talk to him, because I bet yeah, I'm right. We, yeah, you need to make a list, like a legit list, because I feel like... Oh, I already started, multiple, baby. Don't worry about that. Multiple times. Okay, the good, good, because I've already had a couple of things where it's like, oh, yeah, for sure, that's something we'd ask King if we ever met him or had him on the show. And uh, then I was thinking a few days ago, I'm like, I had I said that about like 12 different things, and I can't remember a goddamn single one of them now. <laughs> uh so I don't know. I'd probably just freeze up anyway if he's on the show. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. So, okay. So we talked a lot that all that we just discussed about Jim Dooley in the library. That's episode one. Episode two is called Blood Bull and it shows more of Dooley kind of getting closer and we get more inside of his head a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, it's also very much about um, uh, Lisey's uh, sister, Amanda, who is falling further and further away from reality. Like she's kind of ha- has a break. She she's cut herself and she's just, you know, next door to comatose at this point. Um, and this is something that in the book, you're not, you don't really understand for a good long while that Amanda is going to Booyah Moon essentially in her mind and that she's kind of stuck there. And that part of the uh, scavenger hunt that Lisey is on set by her now dead husband is, in anticipation of this and trying to lead Lisi to saving her sister. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and here is a part, part of my problems with what we were just talking about is that there is no big revelation of, you know, of that's what's happening. Like, cause in the book, it just feels like, you know, this, her sister's older and she's slipping away and it's just what happens to people. Right. It's just, this isn't anything strange or supernatural. Um, it's, it's sad. And, and at this point in Lisey's life where she's lost her husband, you know, her big sister is now slowly disappearing and there's nothing she can do about it. Like that's, that's the vibe of the book. And then, you know, then later you discover that, that Amanda's calling for help and Lisey can help her if she can figure out this puzzle essentially. Um, so, you know, again, part of my problem with with uh, the way that this is structured is that we know pretty much damn near from the end of the first episode what's happening to uh, Lisey's sister. And now it just feels like a waiting game for Lisey to figure it out. Um, but I don't know if that's me, you know, as, as somebody who's read the book and knows the story, put, putting that together. And so I feel like I'm just waiting for the characters to do what they're what they should do. Or, you know, <laughs> I, so maybe I'm bringing I'm bringing it, that into that. You know, it's very possible my point of view is a little. I think um, a little, a little of both, maybe. And Joan Allen, by the way, I, you know, agree. She's, she's just killing it in this performance. Oh man, she is so good, especially in, in the third episode. She has an, an amazing moment in the episode that just hit, um, which mm-hmm. is called "Under the Yum Yum Tree," and uh, uh, she has this amazing section where she kind of breaks through a little bit in, you mm-hmm. know, from Booyah Moon into reality when Lisi is is there and she's asking for help and. You know, when I was talking about how amazing it was that that kind of understated performance that the librarian gave in that scene, Joan Allen does like Emmy Award winning work in this scene where she's playing somebody who's not fully there. That's almost just a conduit, you know, a me, a living, breathing, but empty conduit for this voice that is coming from another world, essentially. Um, and the emotion of it is is being sold in like it. it, it this is the reason why you know, you want to hold out to get a Joan Allen in this part because this, that scene is so powerful and it's so great. I'm a yeah, big fan I, of, I, I read some reviews that were kind of like Joan Allen is wasted 
because she spends most of her time just sitting catatonic. And I'm like, do you have any any fucking idea how hard it is to make that work? If you put a camera in front of the average person, you were just like, okay, you're catatonic. Sell me on it. You know, 99% of people would not be pulling off what Joan Allen is is pulling off here. The The subtlety of what she's doing. And it kind of reminds me of like, when I was a kid, I remember when the stand, the Mick Garris's miniseries was playing on TV. Uh, I remember saying something once Rob Lowe's character was introduced and saying, you know, again, I'm a kid, but I, I said to my mom something like, um, he doesn't have any lines. And she was like, no, he's deaf. And I said, oh, well, that must be the the easiest performance in the world. And she was like, what are you talking like schooled me on this? I was like, you know, <laughs> eight or nine. But I re- I remember her like just taking me to the laundry on that one. And and she was right, you know, to her credit. Yeah. You know, this this shit yeah. is not easy to do. Yeah, the more tools you take out of an actor's toolbox, like the the better they have to be. It is totally just, totally just how it is. Something I I want to point out in this episode as well is they make a change for the better in this one from the novel. I think in the book there's uh, in the flashback with the the father and and young Scott Landon and his brother. Um, there's a a sequence where the father is beating on the older brother and cutting the older brother and telling. Scott, he has to jump, right? And in the book, it's like jumping off of a bench or something. It's not, it's it's like a really little thing. And here he's like um, almost at the top of a barn and he's mm-hmm. making him jump like a solid 15 feet. And and so then you get the understanding why the, this little boy is, is terrified of doing it and is sitting there watching his brother getting cut and hit and all this stuff as the father's demanding that he jump or he's going to do, do it some more. Um, and then the brother, of course, telling him, like, don't you, you you don't have to do this. Don't, you know, essentially, I will take this bullet for you. Don't hurt yourself. And uh, in the book, it plays a little weird because he's described as jumping like three or four feet or something. And it's like he scrapes up his knees like this is something that could kill him if he jumps. Right. And lands right. wrong. So, you know, I really like that change. Um, I also like that the father lays down a little bit more clearly the difference between the two brothers, that there's bad blood in the older son and the younger son. The reason he's making him jump is because he has to make him present because the younger son, I think he calls him distant, can go distant or, and the older son mm-hmm. has bad in him. And so uh, that really kind of shows there's a distinction there because in the book it's, it's way more like muddied that, they both can travel to Booyah Moon sometimes, and then the older one can as he gets older. And like, I really do like that they make a more clear distinction of, you know, the kind of curse of this family is that there's always, you know, anybody born into it, you know, is going to have one of two problems. It's either going to be this possible like blood, you know, possession, evil thing, or it's going to be this ability mm-hmm. to go into another world and get lost in it and like right. literally disappear from from the world. And the father. Uh, is playing this scene, you know, as an abusive, twitchy, half crazed guy that also loves his kids, and and he's play, he he's selling that in the same moment that he like literally just cut the face of the older son with a big ass knife, mm-hmm. you know, and and hit him open handed multiple times, you know, in the face. This like thirteen year old kid. Um, and so you're not supposed to like him. And of course you still don't like him, but he sells the fact that, that this father thinks he's doing this out of love, which is a real crucial thing. Cause if they don't get that right, then it is like all the flashback stuff just falls flat. Totally. I wanted to highlight that while we were on, on the, yeah. the topic. Yeah. No disagreements um, on my end on that one. What do you think uh, of the way, uh, Booyah moon looks like? How do you, how are you feeling about how that's been realized on screen? I think my favorite version of it, the the, the pool area, I, I don't think that the geography is quite established because, you know, there are different right. parts of it. And I wish that we would establish that a little bit more. Right now, we just really see the pool. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but in this latest episode, we do get under uh, under the yum yum tree. We do get um, a little bit of a of a wider view of it. And it's told in one of my, I think probably as gorgeous, uh, the most gorgeous thing that they put in the, the show so far, which is when Scott is telling Lisi all about his backstory, which is a big, with part the, of the, with the, the trees, the, the leaves or branches hanging down all around him. 
Yeah, because yeah. it's it's frozen yeah, in you know, yeah, which gorgeous. is a change from the book, I think. And but like it, they're sitting under a frozen tree, so they're like almost in this dome of ice crystals, which is this you know really amazing uh, visual. And um, you know, I I haven't seen enough to give a full uh, thumbs up or thumbs down on it yet. I think that the steps, like I'm almost the old like Roman Colosseum style steps looks really cool on the on, on the pool i think the pool looks neat but really we've only seen angles on that like you know i'm I'm really curious to see if they delve more into that if we see the path that, that leads up you know uh and out of it and like i'm i want to hear like the the laughing hyena style you know voices in the night like all that stuff i'm really anxious to get to but uh, yeah and i want to i want a real good look at that long boy yeah you know? <clears throat> i feel like we're gonna we're gonna get it oh i i think <laughs> um, so too like it's yeah. um whatever the design is there, I'm not entirely sure what I'm I'm looking at when I when right. I look at it, but I I'm aware of enough to know like, oh, that's gonna be a grotesque motherfucker. Because you see him very like in in shadow. Like it feels like he's or like this over giant the tree with the giant and, Yeah. With giant face that's made up of dozens of other faces. That's kind of what like the the thing I'm getting, I might be completely wrong on that. Again, no, almost everything in Booyah Moon, I think it's almost everything in Booyah Moon of, makes. Oh, yeah, well, I was just gonna say, I think his whole body is made up of other people. I, th- I think he's like made of people, right? Essentially, yeah. Got arms. I, I think and shit I think that's right. Out of him, yeah, yeah. But everything in Booyah Moon makes me want to futz with my TV settings because I'm not one shot. I'll be like, oh, this is the most gorgeous, like what dreams may come style, you know, fantasy world <laughs> right, thing right. in the next shot, like. It, it's like, oh fuck, is my TV going out? Like it, everything's so fucking dark. Um, yeah, but you know, I think that's intentional. I, I think that might be a good place to to put a capper on this. It's the first three episodes, kind of setting everything up. Um, I do want to underline that Julianne Moore. I don't think she's quite gotten her her best stuff yet uh, in in the show and in the the series. She's a a little bit more passive than the Lisi in my imagination, but I think that's by design. Um, cause yeah, I think that's my because prediction right, as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that she's going to turn it um, loose, you know? Yeah. Turn loose here. And especially next episode isn't going to go very well for her. It's called uh, Jim dandy, which is another change. I think in the book he was Jim McCool was his, his fake name. And I, I like Jim dandy way more. Um, well, there's that torture scene in the, in the novel with, uh, with a can opener. My understanding is that pizza cutter we've seen on previous occasions might be, uh, coming into play and, yeah, Woo! and considering some of the gore sure. effects we've seen so far in this series, I think it's going to be pretty gnarly. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's next episode because this one. Yeah, this this one ends kind of leading into without spoiling it. You know, for anybody who might not have caught it yet, it kind of leads into their confrontation. So, yeah, I don't think things are going to go very well for Lisi <laughs> next week. Uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of our our first blush thoughts on the show, and we'll. Uh, you know, we'll be back probably in another three episodes to discuss what the, you know, yeah. the next few are like. Plan, and- I, I think the plan here is we'll we'll roll out a couple of these as just random bonus drops as we get through chunks of it. And then uh, we'll do a big wrap up at the end and throw that on the Patreon. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening to this and we'll see you on the next one. Adios, everyone. <laughs>